Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete podcast coming to you from Oak Cliff in Texas. Today I'm here with Jennifer Wester, skater, artist, and self-described chronically happy person. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. Well, we are recording in the morning here, and I think we've both established that we're not morning people, so, so bear that in mind. This, you can't see this, but this, we've both got a huge mug of coffee each, so hopefully that'll help. Thank goodness. So today we're going to talk uh, probably about fire and ice and, and maybe a little bit about that TV show. We'll see where we get to. Okay. So the, the first question I ask all the guests is how do you introduce yourself at a party when people ask who you are? I tend to leave as much to them having to ask me more questions. Uh, probably, I don't know if this is an annoying tendency or just my desire to not be a, too much of an affront whenever I talk to people because it quickly... I find that quickly people tend to read across my resume and and shy away as not not in a negative but almost like they retract um and i and i don't like that feeling when people won't just discuss something as if i'm the girl next door <laughs> one of the things that you you do and let's we're going to start somewhere so when i was first introduced to you recently and i'm pleasant uh, um, introduction from one of our other guests on the show. Um, you were introduced as an artist, so let's start there. Sounds good. Um, so who are you as an artist and what do you do? What the, what's that all about? So as an artist, this is actually my newest identity. As an artist, I work a lot with lines and tracings and and I think at the root of it, I'm going through my own life cycle of still trying to find those spaces where I relax and zone out from the world. Uh, I've found that whatever I focus on, I return to metaphors that deal with ice skating, which was for a very long time my main identity as an ice skater. And so taking on the artist role, I initially tried to stay very scientific and be able to have this distance. And I think it was mainly just a formal way of rebranding myself. Um, but as I've gotten more into it, I've just kind of come to say, okay, lots of my art is about passion, about tracings in the world, in the sense of of the, the path that you've left behind uh, and, and how you look back on your life and read into that. Um, and it's all filtered through the lens of ice or fire, actually. When you said fire earlier, it's like, yeah, that's, that's the descriptor. <laughs> And when I come back, that was an easy kind of uh, descriptor given that you, you've been to Burning Man and maybe we'll cover that uh, as an artist in residence. So we'll, we'll cover that. So I think it's a fascinating time to, uh, to, to meet you and to meet anybody that's going through a life change and who they think they are and maybe who they've always been, but how you self-describe and that, that's where the question comes from that kind of opens the show. As I do with all my guests, I have a look through everybody's social media and see what they're putting on there. And there was this kind of surreal thing on Instagram of, of you wearing a pair of skates in a warehouse in West Dallas with two people going, that's really cool. <laughs> you know, I'll put a link to it there like that. So just let's start there. Let's talk about kind of some of the things you've done recently in terms of what medium and what sort of... Sure, sure. Right now I've been laying down canvas... Uh, and and then putting different forms of paints or inks down and working with some rollerblades that are designed in order to simulate ice skates and uh, painting through them. Basically, I've had this goal of making my tracings from ice skating very visible to others for a long time. Uh, photographing ice has 
been an ongoing challenge. Somebody mentioned, oh goodness, at least 10 years ago that I should try um, laying down paper and skating across it, but there's this resistance to taking on wheels if you're from the ice skating world. And I think it's mainly just you don't get the same flight, you don't get the same lack of friction to your environment. So um, I, I resisted, I thought, okay, that's gonna be kind of expected. Yeah, there's gonna be a path that's like rolling, I don't know, a wheel through sand or something. And, and then after rattling around with a lot of other ways to capture tracings, which I like to describe as kind of the diary of your balance and momentum during any skating session, right? You're, you've got a, a, an etching whenever you're on ice that shows you every little move that was made and how you missed or how you excelled in that um, moment. So taking that to the wheels, I've been learning how the dynamics change because um, they, they're not completely like being on ice skates and certainly when you put the paint down you you lose friction completely so where at least on the ice I can cut in when I get on paint with the wheels um if I get too much of an edge on there I just slide across the surface um so it's it's been a really fun um really fun experiment of laying down canvas and then pushing myself to recognize in a, in a more, more tangible sense, the way that seeing my path through the world uh, forces me to shift my path, forces me to change my motions. Um, I'm aware of what happens on the ice, and that was one of the reasons that I wanted other people to kind of take a moment and pause and realize what happens when you think about those little nuanced um, movements through the world and how they've affected uh, I guess your environment. Uh, so then now I'm guess I'm seeing it on myself because this paint marks are really large <laughs> and people walk up and say, oh, it's so geometric. And how are you making these really great circles? And I'm thinking they're so not perfect. They're so not right. <laughs> Cause I want that little fine, perfect. I was really excited to get you on the on the show. Um, I'd never really thought about the marks that an ice skater leaves on ice, that you can actually go and look at those and tell how well you did a move or, or how artistic you'd been through what you've left in the world. And I thought that was a fascinating concept already for all of us to think about, you know, uh, what our metaphorical ice tray. It's nice how, uh, I think that's, it's nice for me how relevant bringing that forward and into the light is to, I think, the way... I tend to look at um, various disciplines and try to draw connections between them. And I think it became really evident to me that one of the disciplines I always draw connections between is for some reason ice skating and math, ice skating and computer science, ice skating and journalism, ice skating. I mean, it's ridiculous when I say it, and I and it was never intentional, especially whenever I was in school and I had, I had just retired from competitive skating, which was quite traumatic. It was due to injury and, and I didn't have a desire to retire. So um, there were a lot of nighttime tears uh, and, a, and really a pushback. I don't want to focus any more of my life on this sport that at that time, I think I felt kind of drained by 
Um, so eventually I had to work back to a place where I could let back in those good feelings of how that is my escape world. And, and I remember being in a really emotional place. Uh, I was actually having the time of my life out in California doing uh, one of the professional shows. And I don't remember the details of, of what happened, but just personally, I had a relationship going askew and I, and my field producer was really worried about me getting on the ice because she knew I had to go in front of the camera and she's thinking like, Jen, um, are you going to be okay? Do we need to, to, do we need to get another skater to do their part first? And we get to the rink and I just recall stepping on that ice feeling like that was my escape. I was no longer in this default world. That's a term from Burning Man. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of entered that altered set of physics and it was just so cathartic. I didn't recognize what was happening, but she turned around to me and goes, my goodness, you change whenever you've been out on the ice because I was just happy again. And I forgot all the worries. And, um, and I think those were the times where I had to recognize, okay, just because you didn't get what you want, you can't shut out all the greatness that is there. Um, and to just keep pushing forward at searching for how to reintegrate the things that I really loved um, that weren't necessarily valued actually when I was a skater because it's, it's kind of that dynamic that you find in every discipline, right? You have, you have elements of a discipline that have become valued. So the athletics, the competition results, um, certain qualities that you start to think you need to conform to, even if you enjoy an activity for a completely different reason. And that's where I was at the end of my skating. I had really continued to push to compete because I felt I needed to in order to substantiate my life as a skater. Yet I knew for many years of my skating career, I had said, I'm competing because I want to be able to do really cool shows. So it was never about, it was never about the competition. And yet that's what I had let diminish my um, enjoyment of the sport by the end. And whenever I left uh, competition, that was somehow the overarching disappointment. Um, yeah, so luckily life kind of just kept dangling carrots in front of me to be able to go back out and, and feel the ice world again without that um, gray cloud getting into more shows and then uh, be having the good fortune to run a skate school for five years where I got to see the light in, in the kids' eyes. And, and that was different because all I had coached a lot while I was a competitive skater and, and following the years that I was a skater, I was coaching other competitors. And that was so different from suddenly taking a little kid that had never been on the ice before that would get so nervous, so scared. And then once they were out there, I mean, just beaming, change of personality, suddenly mothers coming up to me, I didn't know my kid could be this outgoing or this happy or this much of a performer. And then they'd step back into default world and, and go back to that sweet, demure little, <laughs> little child. 
And that really spoke to me in a way that um, I couldn't turn back. I, so when we, when we closed the skate school, I just said, okay, I, I can't go back to coaching competitors. I want that space to be mine and I want to be able to help people just enjoy it, but um, I can't give up having the freedom <laughs> to not be in business out there. Yeah, you've talked about your joy in seeing kids um, discover skating and, and the freedom. Um, so when were you that kid? <laughs> Is that where it all started? When did you get into skating? I, I probably was that kid, but I didn't know it. Nobody knew that I was going to become a skater whenever I was that little. I have videos going to birthday parties or um, my dad used to take me to this rink with some of my best friends and just let us go around. And I remember never using the cones or the little buckets to push around. So I think I was always decent out there and thought it was fun, but it wasn't until I was um, waiting around for rehearsals at the Dallas Children's Theater. And my mom said, okay, well, you've got this awkward time. We don't have time to go home. I'm going to sign you up for ice skating. And it was while there was still a little rink in between office buildings in downtown called the Plaza of the Americas. And that was a beautiful rink. I mean, you had palm trees over you, you had prisms casting rainbows on the ice. It was <laughs> a magical world in itself. And then I got on the ice and my mom had made a mistake on the timing. So she had brought me to an adult class. And I guess they just really were against including a child in the adult class for whatever reason. They pulled a coach that was on the sidelines and said, here, we have a kid, you take her. <laughs> and thank goodness they did. Um, and... And so miraculously in these blue plastic rental skates that night, that coach just kept going with things. She didn't stop at what that first level was or second level. She tested me through every level in the basic skills course in that one night. And after that, I basically <laughs> never stopped. <laughs> How old were you at the time? I was 11. Yeah, sorry, oh, 11. I didn't even mention how old I, I was. Sorry. I read an article the other day about how parents, and I know you're a parent too, as, as I am, of young kids, and you see them, like my daughter's one year old, and she she's like she loves hitting the drums with it, drumsticks, and we're like, she's going to be a musician, and yeah. then she's over there doing something else, and we're like, she's going to be a fashion designer. You know, you kind of <laughs> protect all these things on, on your kids there like that, and then some, inevitably some grainy home video comes out where you're <laughs> oh, she was always skating. <laughs> Right. No, I wanted to be the lone female on a male World Cup soccer team when I was growing up. Right, right, <laughs> that right. Was, that was like my my dream. And and suddenly I became this fancy figure skater, right? <laughs> it didn't make any sense in my head because uh, I was very much a tomboy. Yeah. I, and when and being 11 was also the card stacked against me uh, in the words of others. And I recall, I mean, coaches saying to my mom, if you don't have, I don't know, I think it was like $20,000 a year to spend on ice skating, then you shouldn't even start, which is ludicrous. Um, and there was a particular girl that luckily I can't remember her name, but I remember her taunting me that I was too old. Why would I, why am I even trying? <laughs> at, at 11 years old. At 11, <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I very vividly remember this little competition that I was doing and I fell in the middle of it and she was up on the balcony and I just recall her face looking at me. And it's, it's strange how those things stick, but they fuel that little like, 
why are you telling me I can't do something? I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go do that now. <laughs> and that's probably where you are today. Yeah. <laughs> so essentially, you'd found that you had a talent for this and, and maybe athletics, so including soccer there, you were competitive and you had that, that element to it. Did you just kind of just start enrolling in lessons? And then how, what happened with school? Did you just uh, eventually go to a skate school or something like that? Is that how it works? So I think it was it was very serendipitous for me. The, the way my schooling had... Um, had rolled, I was already homeschooling. And and that was just a factor of finances. My parents were not in the position to fund um, moving back into Highland Park at that point. And so my brother was in college and he had just graduated from Highland Park and uh, we had consolidated properties in that year. So we had moved on out to Kaufman County, which was a huge shift in dynamic just um, schooling wise it's perfectly good if you start out there it's really hard to move from city life especially such an academically driven a location like highland park out to another style system and that transition really created a lot of resistance from me which i don't think i recognized at the time luckily my mom did i i mean i recall just not wanting to go to school and that was not me i mean i i was a straight a kid loved, loved, loved everything um, about going to school. And so my mom said, okay, we're going to homeschool you because, you know, hopefully we'll move back soon and you just don't need to be getting this negative uh, attitude towards going to school. So luckily I was already at that point because once I passed all those levels in one night at the skate school, I think my mom says she walked down into the lobby and and said something like, anyone want to trade for lessons? And, and, and the coach that had me out there said, actually, yes, I will. Now, interestingly enough, she has never come back for whatever this trade was going to be. <laughs> so I owe my entire career to her because she would just stay out on the ice with me for hours at a time. It was $5 to skate like all day there. And I would stay on the ice for six hours at a time and do my homework when I was eating uh, and, and at night and all sorts of other times of the day. I remember doing all of these cassette tapes to learn uh, history in the car, you know, because it was a 35-minute commute. And then to get to the big rinks, it was an hour commute. And so things just kind of went in that direction where once I spent six months with, with that coach, I needed to get to the bigger rinks. She had connections that started putting me with other coaches. And within a couple of years... I'd, within that year, I'd gone to regionals. Within a couple of years, I was invited uh, out to, to Italy to train. <laughs> so there, was, there were quite a few little coaching changes and things in between that. But uh, at 14, I remember my mom getting the call saying, so there's a coach that would like Jen to try out with a boy in Italy. And I had never left the country before. <laughs> so here I was from 11 to 14, um, suddenly taking a trip across the Atlantic with my parents to Rome. I, I was at that point in ice dance, and yeah, it that was my world changing in that year. I, they ended up saying, yes, we're going to skate together, um, which was amazing. And I moved to Italy for almost a year. I, I was completely stuck in the mindset that I was monolingual whenever I left. 
you know, I had tried to do, I'm going to learn Spanish in elementary school. Oh, I'm going to learn, I don't know, French, whatever. None of which had taken. Uh, I was definitely already integrated into the unfortunate side of those, um, I guess, failed attempts at learning another language where I, I put up that defense. Well, I'm American. I, I speak English. I don't need to speak another language. Then get dropped in Italy without anybody else that speaks English <laughs> and realize, oh, this is cool. I can do this. Okay. Uh, needless to say, when I came back fluent in Italian, I wanted to learn every other language. <laughs> there, was, there was no barrier to wanting to communicate with the world at that point, which I'm super thankful for. Um, so politics were the downfall of being able to, in the end, skate for Italy, uh, which, you know, stuff that every now and then comes into play whenever you're dealing with international teams. But as a result, I had some training mates that invited me in my little interim time while I didn't have a skating partner to go uh, live with them in Switzerland and attend a German language school, or it was a language school. I was going to take German there while she went there for English. So then I got this awesome skating-related trip to stay for a fall in Switzerland and came back like, wow, I'm trilingual now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this is a long-winded story of my skating life. <laughs> How did you get from that point um, when you'd been in Switzerland to representing USA in figure skating? While I was there, I was basically just training. Uh, I, I wasn't in a good mental mindset about skating at that point because it had been a rough year to leave the U.S. thinking I was going to Italy to train for kind of my forever skating partner. It kind of sounds like a marriage. It's, I mean, skating is, is one of those things where y you have to have a really good bond with your partner. Most people don't get married. Uh, I ended up marrying my later skating partner. But at that point, most people um, would say that's, that's a good way to be on thin ice, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, so, yeah, um, I... I as you could understand, like after leaving there, I was just completely distraught. I'd left my whole life here, and then I'd left my whole life there. I was 16 returning to the US and not being able to do any of the things I could do in Europe, <laughs> where I was living with a bunch of other teenagers. Uh, so that was my, my escape, was to go back to Switzerland. And then I came back here, because that was a limited experience from the start it was intended to be started partner searching. Uh, and the skating world is just a very small community when it comes down to it. We were talking earlier about how Dallas seems like a small city. Well, the skating world seems like a small world, large community. So everybody knows everybody and has been connected in some way. And uh, I had a goal of doing na nationals in Dallas in 2003, whenever it was here. And so I kind of just was looking for who can, who can I skate with just to be able to at least do that. So I ended up training in Colorado and then California in order to do that. Um, unfortunately, that experience wound up in an injury to my shoulder, which is probably just being too hasty to get to those short-term goals instead of <laughs> looking for a long-term fit. And in recovery for that, uh, a British skater 
that had skated for the U.S. in his time called and said, hey, you need to try out with Daniil Bronsov. And I don't even know if he said the name at that point. But as, that, as it turned out, I had been told by other people earlier on in my career to go try out with him. And it was kind of, we, we had, he had been told apparently about me in kind of an anonymous way at earlier times. So when we finally had this tryout, it was kind of surreal. Like we skated around for half an hour and the coach kind of said, okay, you're going to skate for a long time? Yes. You're going to take for a long time? Yes. Okay. You're going to be partners? And I was standing there going, wait, wait, what? What? Because at that point, Daniel already had two world titles. And here I was this kind of nobody that started skating too late. Like, what are you doing here in this sport? Um, so yeah, that was one of those say yes to the opportunity and the adventure started all over again. I ended up in Connecticut. When I think back to things of figure skating, I just kind of assume two people from the local skating rink, you know, get together and then that's it. I'm, my, my model for figure skating growing up in the in the Isle of Man in the UK uh, was like Torval and Dean. <laughs> you know, that's a kind of that's a stick, still to today. If I had to name somebody that was ever. Um, so that's a bit of an outdated reference, but look it up. No, on the that's, no <laughs> that is a reference that you must look up. If you don't know Torval and Dean, you must look it up. I never realized that there was this, you called it a partner search there and like a marriage, you know, that, that your destiny, it sounds like it is so, um, so connected to finding somebody else so that you can have chemistry with, that you can do your, your, your thing together. For, for the partner disciplines, it's, extremely important and two of the four disciplines that people are typically familiar with are partnered disciplines so um yeah it's definitely a major component of finding like who you can work with every day who you can i mean it's it's a lot of roller coaster up and down and and exhausted and attitudes and then also being able to work with a coach that is there to push you and tick you off and try to find the buttons that are going to make you push yourself. So I think that's part of why this the worldwide spread of skating community always kinds of feel kind of relates to each other as if they're family. I think we just know the trials and tribulations that we've gone through kind of searching the world for things. And if you're lucky, you do find the skating partner in the backyard. And there are some amazing, amazing partnerships that we're fortunate enough to be in that situation. But most of us have a, a big search in front of us. <laughs> You talked earlier about wanting to be the only female on the um, the male <laughs> soccer team. Um, I just want to try and understand uh, kind of your relationship to skating as a, as an individual, the sensations which later on have come through to your artistry, and then to working with a partner and, and kind of get those that kind of relationship working in, in three kind of the, the competition layer and. and are those all part of the same thing? Do they all become intermeshed or are those three separate things? I think they are separate things. So I wrote about my very satisfying experiences when I was first learning to skate in that plaza rink, entertaining the people that would walk across in the business uh, towers. And, and that desire to entertain was also why I really wanted to get good shows like that. That was initially my big, that's what I want to do. 
But one thing that I'm, and I'm to this day not great about, is following the rules that somebody else gives me. <laughs> I just, I don't really love following patterns. Uh, I was a seamstress for a few years, so it was part of why I did custom work. I didn't want to do anything twice. And so actually the individual part of it was great for me. And I think one of the things that frustrated my partners occasionally was my kind of a neat desire to change things, <laughs> like to do it a little bit different this time, uh, which is not great if you're working with a partner. And I had to learn how to calm myself down and try to repeat, uh, re repeat motions and repeat movements very similar to the way that I track around those canvases now. And uh, yeah, in the, one of the things that I loved about skating with a partner though was having that ability to act out a relationship on the ice and having someone to feed off of instead of just feeding off of audience members that, especially when they're judges, they're very cold faced. <laughs> You don't get You're a lot of much feedback there. No, <laughs> no, I, um, I definitely enjoyed being on the ice where I could turn to somebody that I was skating with and relate to them. And then the rest of the world would go away. And that was my trick normally in competition actually was to tell myself, this is just a really big show. And so act it out because you're on stage. What's the difference between competition and shows? Because you said before, you said a few times uh, you wanted to do some good shows. What's the difference between those? For me, and I think every skater may have a different opinion about this, but there are skaters that really love the competition and love being judged and love like doing it perfect now. And of course you have elements, you have things that you're being graded on that come down to those fine edges. What, you know, was that millimeter flipped slightly to the left or to the right? And I think, as I was saying, my desire to change things and, to, and, and maybe it doesn't always happen perfectly, I really enjoy that part of, of my personality now. In competition, that made me extremely nervous. <laughs> you know, the, the fact that I could improv uh, was not a great thing <laughs> in competition. But it was always fabulous when I was playing around to music on the ice or in front of people or when I wanted to go out and just perform, then great, strike up a show anytime. Uh, for me, that was the difference in being able to relax in front of an audience versus in a, in a setting where I was going to be one or two or, you know, as, as we say in sports, right? The second is the first loser. So, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty depressing, isn't it? Really? <laughs> Did you ever look much to the future? I mean, what was your, where was your focus? Was it on the next show or competition? Or were you thinking, you know, what am I going to do when I finish skating? What, what, what's, <laughs> what sort of goes through people's head as, they, as they're going along? What's it like? Well, okay, so I, I always had a goal of getting my bachelor's degree. Um, but I definitely put it off once I finished high school. And, and so I think in my head at some point I was thinking, okay, I'm going to return and do that I'm not sure in what way because at that point i'd been out of the system in terms of the traditional system for a long time and and after that i definitely had a short-term view um in the years that in the later years of our career the larger organizations that kind of run all these competitions and help facilitate the fact that 
people like me want to go out and compete all over the world, we're trying to push, especially Team USA athletes, to go ahead and make those five-year plans, make those long-term forecasts, and then and then work out the year ahead and, and whatnot. And to some extent, you had to because when you're on the doping list for those automatic draws where they can come and, you know, test your urine anytime they want to, uh, <laughs> you have to submit your daily schedule. And, and they don't call you before they come. So if you are not um, able to be located within an hour of the time they've showed up wherever they thought you were supposed to be, then you failed the test. Mm. It doesn't matter what the reason was. So there was actually a text number that we had to submit any schedule changes to. But I felt like every time we would go into a big event, for me, like the world was ending at the end of the day. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. So I just, and, and every year I recall the sense that I can't make any plans for like the week after nationals or the week after, because I just, I, I just focused on nationals. I don't know what I thought would happen. Like the world would blow up. You'd scared <laughs> off the edge of the, the, yeah. the event would happen. And, and then suddenly I don't, I don't have any idea why that was consistently, I think a little bit of a problem because I was putting too much pressure on those little moments for me. If I had just continued to plan life, maybe I wouldn't have been so uh, nervous to the fact that I was kind of, I think, known for getting sick at the, <laughs> at the big events. I would either end up with a cold right after, as in like right after, get off the ice suddenly, my nose is stopped up and I got a headache, and or, um, or right before, I remember losing my voice completely the day before an event, which was so frustrating, <laughs> so frustrating. You're like, body, why are you failing me now? <laughs> for shows that never happen though. So it was only this competition setting that would just blow my mind. You competed for, for a while and, and um, then you said that you had an injury. Right. So um, I, I guess like many girls in, in artistic sports, uh, went through a really bad time with my nutrition. I was um, struggling with bulimic tendencies for a, for a little while and at the end of that struggle, we were headed off to a big competition. Um, a coach that knows me very well was kind of like, hey, before we close it up for the day, tomorrow we've got our flight to nationals, just go around and do one more uh, twizzle sequence, which is actually my favorite element in competition. And I think I, I just was definitely not concentrated. Uh, thought, oh yeah, this is my easiest thing, let's go, let's do it. Fell smack onto my knee. Uh, was com in complete disbelief. Obviously didn't have great nutrition because as it turned out, I uh, broke my kneecap. In that mental state though, of going off to a competition that at that time was really important to us. And, um, we had set out for comp from competition for five years due to international politics again, coming into play with Daniil's release in order to skate for the US. So it turned out that that weekend, his release had come through. And I knew that this competition was what we needed to finally uh, not have to give up our assignments, to finally be able to get um, going. And boom. So I you know, get ice on my knee. I can barely put weight on it. My coach is like, are you OK? Are you OK? I, yeah, I'll be fine. It's just bruise. We get bruises all the time. Uh, I tried to get on it the next morning before the plane ride. Still couldn't bend it. Uh, 
and when we got to the event, I went immediately to the, to the doctors, but I was so disconnected from my emotions about it that I think it made it really hard for them to think it was too serious. Um, I ended up not, not having an x-ray on it, at least not for another couple of months. Um, so they basically said, you're, you're not completely broken down in tears. This is probably a bone bruise, which will hurt as if it's a broken bone, but it's a bruise, you're fine. We're gonna physical therapy, get the, get the swelling down, you know, get you hopped up on Advil or Aleve or whatever, <laughs> and you'll be good. So, so that does that does a thing on your mind, right? You you go into athlete mode. Okay, what kind of wimp are you if you can't skate on a bruise? You know. Um, so yeah, we we competed not our best, we but we competed somehow. And and it was a few months later than I got down to Dallas and uh, I went into my PT because at that point, like my muscle was just sagging the other way, and and I still couldn't get upstairs without back waiting but we had shows that had happened in between there and that was how we made our money so um i got back to dallas and the pt's just going i'm calling your surgeon i'm sorry what i mean i hadn't even seen him yet i was sitting in this front office i had just filled out the little form to go in and this was the same guy that had treated me for my shoulder surgeries so so he goes uh jen in the two shoulder surgeries that you've had with me and recoveries, you've never put an eight to 10 pain down on a piece of paper. You're going directly to, your, to the doctors, not, not to physical therapy. Uh, and, and it was that morning that they, they did the x-ray finally and came in and said, just thank your stars you didn't um, snap your quad tendon. Because you know, basically that was the potential result of continuing to put pressure on an unhealed broken patella. So yeah, that was <laughs> a big, uh, a big down point in that roller coaster of emotions with uh, skating, and and a long recovery because then you know the decision about I was in surgery within the week, um, and we did finally get our international assignments, which suddenly meant oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm in a position I've never been in. I have this horrendous injury. I don't want anyone to think that I can't do this. But it was out of that, so it was. That injury, although we had some, we had a great fall season, uh, we had a great next season all the way through the spring because that was the year that we got assigned to Four Continents and, and we had, at that point I felt amazing. And then going into the next season where we had two Grand Prix, I fell ill two weeks before our first Grand Prix with the flu. How do these assignments work? So you, you've mentioned that a few times that you're waiting for that. Do you, do you have to kind of get on a list? Right, yeah. It's shifted over the years because uh, if you follow skating, there's the judging system changes and all of these details. So there are ranking systems, and then different events have different ways that they select. They invite the competitors or the countries, you know, depending on. So if they've invited the country, the country has an internal system by which they assign skaters out of their team envelopes, which have met criteria in prior competitions, blah, blah, blah. Uh, if it's an invite competition, then it's going up to those committees. And then, you know, the countries are rallying for which skaters they want picked. But basically, it comes down to a different decision maker to um, hand out the invitations and then the skaters to accept them. But that being said, like skaters, no, you, you'd want to try everything not to have to decline. 
uh, an assignment, especially after we had waited five years um, for, for these things to finally come through. And so, and you accumulate points from having competed. So that affects the next year's assignments. So, or at least at the time that was the case. And uh, yeah, so I came down with the flu. I didn't think much of that, except for that, geez, this is not a good time to have the flu, except for my knee just blew up. It just swelled, you know, and it, it had been great for like, over a year, and I had no idea what was going on. But when I got back on the ice from that, I started having these moments where I just couldn't couldn't move my knee right. And um, so at the end of that we battled through getting better from the flu. <laughs> um, that was a long story in itself. Did our Canadian event, did our, um, our French event, and then went home. And they were basically like, you are still not recovered from the flu. You need two weeks off uh, just staying at home, getting better. And the knee never came back to feeling good. And I didn't understand what was happening until I think Christmas time or something. I came home and... and my surgeon said, well, uh, your knee looks like a snow globe. That's the problem. <laughs> so I had lost, somehow, something happened where I think it had attacked essentially my, the cartilage underneath the patella that had been broken. And, and the next thing I knew, the end of that season was uh, another knee surgery, same knee, uh, to get a microfracture in order to, you can't replace cartilage. Um, so at least at the time, what they did was say, okay, what you can do is put in scar tissue, essentially, right? So they make little holes in the bone that cause it to bleed, and then you have a time period in which you're very limited in your motion because they want that to solidify into scar tissue that'll act as cartilage, and eventually that's going to break down, and eventually you're going to need to do it again, but... Basically, that was the day that my, my doctors came in and said, listen, you're going to have to be uh, healthy, not overly athletic, but in shape and not overweight for the rest of your life. Otherwise, you're going to have major problems. <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, in that point that, that Danielle looked at me and said, uh-uh, like you're not, you're not putting yourself through competition anymore. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't interested in going on to do shows. So being done with competition meant also being done. And, you know, that was the moment of like, oh, what's happening to my life? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I think that was the question was, right? What, what happened with <laughs> the injury? <laughs> that was the injury. That was the, I was trying to talk him back into competing, I think, the next nine months of my recovery. This seems like phenomenally um, difficult path, and uh, I might ask you later on whether you'd recommend figure skating. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> I would, I would. I'm, I'm a big supporter of figure skating, actually. <laughs> you know, there'll be people listening, potentially as I am here now, just thinking, well, how difficult is this compared to like a, a normal job, in quotes, where you, you're like waiting for your fitness and finding the right partner and that they're fit as well and that everything's going fine for competitions and you're performing well and you're staying healthy when all the pressures are to not be healthy, I guess, to lose weight and travel a lot and, and do all of these and stress out about that. 
and then hope that you're not going to get injured this whole time. This seems like a tremendously difficult way to uh, earn a living. But there must have been some good parts about it as well. Right. No, I mean, I think to that extent, every every passion has its dangers. Every job you take on has its various stressors and risks. And, and at the end of the day, it comes down to what you're passionate about. Um, and that's why I would recommend, I recommend anyone doing anything that they can find that they get that drive to just want to be there and do that every waking moment, then, I mean, caution to the wind and go for it. You know, that's what life's about. Um, there's actually a skater that was also a skater in my day. She's, I'm majorly cheering her for her just because she's had this kind of double career in skating, but she's also an amazing person and she's still an inspiration to me because even we're friends, she skates for Italy, um, now in pairs. And uh, she put on her, her Instagram feed a few months ago, something about this very thing about just like, what's life about if you're not living for those things that you're passionate about? And, and I think she said something about her father just saying, so long as you feel that drive, go. And, um, and that was what I was fortunate to have too, was my, I, months before I got that invite to Italy, I remember my dad knowing that skaters sometimes leave home to go train. And he was like, you're never leaving home to go skate. And I'm, I believe he was fully honest about that. I mean, I'm very close with my family. I love my family. There's no animosity with my parents, um, never has been so it was really hard to leave them. But when I was getting on that plane, he turned around and said, you can do this. And I know you want to do it, you know? And, and that was the biggest, um, I don't know, just moment of believe in yourself and go. Um, and I think it's knowing your, your kids, whenever you see those moments where you're like, wow, they're, they're really, Focus, they're really driven on wanting to do this or in yourself whenever you're suddenly like this this is satisfying to me um and i know we're not used to it in america saying i don't care how hard it is to make money or i don't care how much it won't make me climb this social ladder but i think it's come down for me to be if I have been afforded this magnificent luck to be in a location such as, I mean, being born in the US was a stroke of luck for me, right? A lot of things were just easier for me. Uh, being born to a family that could afford a certain level of comfort made things just easier for me, right? And so if I was lucky enough to have this kind of just bestilled upon me, who am I to then push away something that I'm really passionate about and can give a lot to the world for um, just because, oh, well, that's not going to make me as much money. That seems just so <clears throat> frustratingly capitalistic. I don't know. And, I, and I have full respect for capitalism. I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur. So it's not um, that, I, that I don't understand the, the need to feel like I want to be able to support I want to be able to support others. I want to be able to support my family. I want to be able to support a certain lifestyle, but at what expense? Because if I'm giving up, you know, those dream projects because, ah, uh, you know, I can go 
sit in an office and make 300k a year and I don't know act like I'm king of the world was that more satisfying than realizing that wow I dreamt this and then I went and did it and even if I make no money at it no that's not more satisfying <laughs> <laughs> But we'll let you make up your own mind. Um, okay, so uh, wow, so we've covered a lot of ground now. And how, how do you decide? How did this play out then? When you realised that you're injured and you weren't going to do that, what what happened next? After a lot of freaking out, <laughs> I dug myself into going back to that dream of getting my degree. Um, I didn't know at that point whether or not I was just going to do everything online. I kind of just buried myself in, I had already started a costuming business at that point because I had learned how to sew fairly young and, and really enjoyed making my own costumes and other friends uh, needed costuming issues. And so I was lucky enough to have friends that were going to the Olympics, uh, having me doing some of their, their clothing. And I just really piled on tasks for myself, I think, at that point. And um, got away from the ice in that in that way, not necessarily de-stressing at all, but refocusing and and putting all my attention towards. Um, well, at that point, getting to a point where I could see a new day as being positive because I was just distraught every night, still missing the ice. Um, but I was coaching a lot. I was doing these costumes. And eventually one of my students said, you know, you should think about applying to Yale. And I thought, ha, 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 you're funny. Uh, but he had credentials. <laughs> he actually worked there. <laughs> and at the time, he didn't know how I would go about doing this because I was not an 18-year-old. You know, I'd actually... I hadn't even taken the SATs at that point. Um, I'd graduated high school, but I think I was just in that mindset of like, eh, I'm going to make college work for me. It's fine. But when he gave me that idea, it was like, okay, if there's one college I might change up my lifestyle for, <laughs> it would be, it would probably be Yale. Um, and I was living in Connecticut, so it wasn't it wasn't that far of a stretch in terms of I wouldn't have to move. I would I could commute. Geez, how would I even do this? It turned out there actually is a program for non-traditional applicants um, to Yale. And so I kind of focused on, okay, let's do it. Let's apply. But I had a very short time window. So, so as it is with me, because I work much better under a very tight time window as I've now come to realize and accept. Um, I piled on a few courses so I had some kind of record of what I did in real classrooms. Somebody said, well, you really need a bricks and mortar kind of statement that you can participate in a class. And, and I went, I did like those over the Christmas season classes where you try to do six months worth of work in two weeks. And, <laughs> and then, then I, uh, and then I sat down and wrote the essay. I thought there was one essay. Got down to turning in the paperwork time, and I'm like, I'm gonna package this up. I'm gonna drive it down there. Went, oh my goodness, I have to write a second essay. <laughs> and and so I sat down that morning. Through, I mean, luckily these essays were literally about writing your life story. Like, why are you at this point in your life where you're returning to academia? Why did you leave academia? What does it mean to you? I mean, things that I think I've always been very reflective about. 
And, and I remember driving that set of paperwork down to the admissions office, putting it into that mailbox and say, okay, if they don't choose me, they're lost. <laughs> I mean, like that was my mom's words to me. And I just repeated that to myself, you know? I was not that confident. I did not think I would get in. Um, but I, but I kind of just had to place it in my mind as it's in somebody else's hands now. Um, and lo and behold, we were in, again, thank, thank you to skating. I kind of got distracted from that application being out there. A friend called and said, would you be interested in doing a show in China? Yes. <laughs> so uh, we went off to China in May of 2010 for this show. And while I'm over there, I get this message. We would like to have an interview with you. I mean, I was, I don't know what time it was here, but in China, I was some god awful early time of the morning and I was jumping around the room like crazy. Um, still didn't get in. I mean, this was still my interview. So I got back immediately, ran down to, to the Yale campus, um, anticipating all these ways that I was going to have to answer these questions. Darn it, if they didn't make me cry in that interview. <laughs> not people. intentionally, not intentionally. I'm actually, I, um, I've now learned actually how to interview people from this admissions um, interviewer. But it, yeah, it was amazing. She sat there and asked me this slew of questions that I had a really good grasp on what I wanted to say in responding. But then she asked me something about skate and it was like, why do I skate or what, what does that mean to me? And I just, I could feel the tears like rolling down my face and I just thought, I've lost it. There's no way they're letting me in now. <laughs> this is over. <laughs> is there no crying at Yale? Is that part of the rules of that? I don't know. I think I, I think in my head it was like, oh, come on, keep your composure about you. <laughs> and um, yeah, I definitely, again, I walked away going, they're lost. They're not going to pick me. <laughs> um, so I buried myself back into my sewing business. Um, and then the banner came in the mail with little like the um, what are those things called the the triangular banners like a pendant sort yeah of thing. it was a pendant um, is that what they do they send it to you I it was a big envelope and and I opened it up and there was a and there was the the pendant in the envelope along with the acceptance letter and I just like <laughs> I freaked out. <laughs> Well, they do some things right, don't they? They, you know, there's a sense of a ceremony there. It's totally true. I was, I was awarded something else recently, um, where there wasn't the the big fanfare, and I read that letter as if I had lost, just <laughs> just because it wasn't that big fanfare, you know, type of thing, and I had to reread the letter because actually I read right across the congratulations, as in like congratulations again. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that idea, Yale. I'm gonna have big envelopes for the guests on here with like some sort of pendant, total life complete pendant. It makes there, people there. excited, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay. I'm just writing that down. It's the small things. It's the small things. <laughs> How did you decide what to, to study? Mm. Was there lots of different options? What was going through your mind? You didn't right. have much time. Um, so at Yale, they have this blue book. I mean, now I think it's all digital. I don't. I don't think they still publish it. They decided to save paper. But, I mean, it was a really thick, what, three or four inch size book. And I went through there, started highlighting anything that was interesting to me uh, before I looked at what degrees they had. 
they have what's called shopping week also, which I think a lot of schools do, where you have to go attend all the classes that you think you want, including some that are like your second and third tier, and you have to carry that whole workload until the end of that period when you finally say, yes, this is what I'm taking, or I've gotten into these classes. And um, so after highlighting all these kind of dream courses, I went and opened up the pamphlets of like what kind of majors there were. And one of them, I mean, I had highlighted basically all the core courses for the computer science and fine art, which is called computing and the arts there. So it was, it was actually a fairly new major um, where they were trying to combine disciplines because they had recognized people doing this double majoring. Uh, but it was challenging to say the least because there's not a lot of um, crossing between those two sides of campus typically. And additionally, I mean, there is no dumbing down the computer science at Yale just because you're also doing art, <laughs> right? Which I'm not saying that it should be dumbed down, but in the sense that most of those computer science uh, majors have probably spent years before getting there just focused on computer science. I know for me, I really had experience, but not anything that could compare. I had interest, but I was coming in at a very different level. So luckily, because I was already a non-traditional, because I had already kind of said, my life is my own and I'm now it's just about meeting the things that I want to be satisfied having accomplished in my life. I wasn't worried about my GPA. There were some semesters where I was fabulous. There were some semesters where it was all computer science and I was struggling. <laughs> but it was intentional in the sense of like, I'm not here not to challenge myself. Uh, I was fortunate enough to you know not be that 18, 19 year old that was worried about, well, what's the next big step? And I have to have the perfect scores and I have to have the perfect image. I was kind of like, yeah, this is hard, but I want to do it. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to be the kid over there that has perfect everything and did my 40 hour homework in six. I'm going to be the person that's still sitting here going, I will figure this out. I will do it. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up doing that was just continuing to remind myself like if if I've if I've been given this opportunity then why am I gonna sit here and say oh it's only to improve what I'm good at um there was just way too much else to go explore and like who better to learn it from my goodness like <laughs> what happened when you finished that then did, did you already have something in mind I mean you, you talked about being a serial entrepreneur and having various side businesses. I'm sure there were plenty of ambitious, motivated yeah, people. Yeah, well, actually, um, skating came back into my life at, at a very important moment in that. So, I, you know, I was, I was non-traditional, so I started very late. So I actually had both of my kids while I was um, completing my uh, academic career at Yale. And I got this phone call over Christmas break in 2000, it was Christmas of 2014. And, and I remember the coach that I had had in Italy back when I was 15 said, Jen, it's Walter. Do you still speak Italian? <laughs> and I thought, um, I don't know. I had been speaking Russian for a decade at that point. And he said, okay, Good. Remember, you're Italian. Somebody from Italy is going to call in like five minutes on Skype. I don't know, what? 
I was down, you know, I was down on Yale campus. I was sitting in this coffee shop with my computer open thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing here, but yes, okay, what's, what's gonna be thrown at me? I have one more semester here until I've graduated. Well, what was thrown at me was, hi, do you wanna come do uh, what was the same thing that I'd done in Hollywood essentially, only on Italian TV. So it was skating with celebrities, skating with the stars. Uh, but the catch is, Anytime you're on camera, you have to be speaking Italian. <laughs> so it had been a good 15 years since I had been regularly speaking Italian. Um, on top of it, you have about 12 days to decide. And you have to be on a plane in 12 days. So I, yeah, that was, you know, when I was 15, that trip to Italy completely changed the trajectory of my life and what I perceive to be my horizons, linguistically, all sorts of ways. Um, and, and this one, again, I was at a state where that last semester was so daunting. I'd gotten to the point where I was really tired of what I was going towards. I had actually kind of focused on, okay, how am I making money whenever I get out of here? And I wasn't skating at all because it was everything in the ice rink was a business um so it was it was just really like okay well then I'm gonna do consulting and I like to change up things and draw lines between different disciplines and I like to constantly have a new task I that'll be a great thing it'll make me lots of money how do I start to do that totally away from anything that I was truly like passionately driven to to do I think I I would have directed all my attention to any project that had come up, but at the same time, I had been building this dream list of projects for myself for years and just not going after them. Um, what was on the list? A lot, well, a lot with, with art, a, I mean, a lot with art, a lot with skating uh, in terms of more of a fine art concept of it, all of which seemed a bit estranged from reality <laughs> one of which was like building a pair of stiletto skating no like so stilettos with blades on the bottom of them right I'd made the sketch back I don't even know when but I was still competitor when I made this sketch and it was a pair of my uh, stiletto heels with uh, a blade attached and then I had learned to weld while I was there in part of this exploration that I need to needed to visually see this algorithm for um, biological perception of, of lines and tangent angles. And so I had gone to a welding course and I had learned how to weld so I could build these models. And, and so lo and behold, I'm, I'm actually capable of making this, but I hadn't done it. You know, I just kept, I kept taking these art courses, being really engaged in them, but thinking that's never gonna make me a career that I can you know, afford to live this lavish lifestyle. I don't even know what I wanted because I, because I never really loved living like throwing money out the window. Um, I just didn't, I didn't grow up necessarily with that concept because it was, it was taking everything for me to skate at that point. Um, so I think it was an empty goal. Uh, and luckily life kind of steered me in, in the direction of being, forced back into the skating world. I said yes, all right. I had to put off courses. I had to like extend my graduation uh, because I 
because I left for Rome for two months. <laughs> uh, but in the, in the meantime, I get there and I suddenly realize that I'm surrounded by people that knew me when I was 15. They had a different perception of who they were meeting because of that in a good way. They had no boxes around what I had grown to need to be like, a, you know, a money making individual that could stand on their own two feet. You know, it was, it was that 15 year old kid with stars in her eyes, trying to learn a new language and wanting to communicate with everybody and live out dreams. And so they started asking you, well, what do you do now? <laughs> and I basically had no answer because I wasn't a skater in that sense anymore. Um, and yet I was about to not be a student either. And I wasn't interested in going into programming. So it's like, well, I'm not a computer scientist, but I really was afraid of taking on the identity of an artist yet. I think it was like so close to that animosity with society of like, how is that going to make you a career and how's that going to make you money? Uh, as an, an athlete, I had faced that, right? Even you were like, that seems like a really hard path. Maybe you should rethink that. Um, and I, and, and I had already recognized, you know, when you're, when you're in a bus or a plane or anywhere and people go, Oh, you were an athlete. Did you go to the Olympics? And, and I didn't go to the Olympics, right? I was in that pool of alternates and things that were, um, not quite there at the right time in the right space. And, and as soon as you say no, I mean, you just see their energy drop and it's basically like, yeah, yeah, you played in middle school. You know, like, it doesn't matter that you dedicated your whole life. It's fine. <laughs> um, so, so that was really, I think, still so close to the surface of my skin that I just was, was afraid of saying I'm an artist, right? Like I didn't have credentials to say I'm an artist. So, so I, who am I to take on that identity? And then um, luckily one of these uh, skaters that, I had, that had known me from a teenager said, well, show me like some of your work. Cause I think I, I mentioned like I'm working on a bunch of projects, Pull, start pulling up pictures, a lot of which were metal sculpture and, and uh, pieces of art that I had done on campus. And, and he goes, oh, okay, you're an artist. And he said it was such ease and, and himself, he had become um, a performance and musical artist. So it was kind of like somebody credible giving me that identity without me having prompted it was, I mean, it was, that was life shifting um, by itself because I was kind of like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Why am I gonna say no to this? Yeah, yeah. And then the second half of that was then across these two months, I realized how privileged we are to expect our economy to work the way it does here in the US. That you know you work and then you get paid on a regular basis or immediately, especially at that point because I was coaching skating at home. So I was getting paid maybe even like the minute I stepped off the ice. And instead here, I got there. They didn't give me my money for even paying my expenses until six weeks in. And then, and that they gave me too little it didn't even cover my expenses. And then I was like, at the very end of the contract, we had a week left and I'm thinking, surely they're gonna give me this money as soon as we walk out. And they're going, no, they're not gonna like, yeah, yeah, they'll send a check or whatever. And then they say, oh, by the way, there's this little detail in the contract. And yeah, um, we're actually cutting everybody's pay by a sixth. 
you know, my mouth dropped open. How is that? This is impossible. What's going on? You know, every every bit of my like Americana, you can't do this to me, <laughs> came out. But it was for naught. You know, at the end of the day, I it took me another eight months to even get paid, and I didn't get paid everything that I had signed that contract to be paid for. And and I had to just write off the rest of it. They were like, "This you're going to spend more on legal fees, all this other um, problems of the logistics." And I was forced to realize, oh, wait, this is not new for anybody else. Anybody else in my cast or my friends in Italy were like, yeah, I mean, sometimes I go three months and I don't get my paycheck just because, you know, they can't give it to me yet. And I thought, how is that? How, how do you live then? And then the, even the lawyer, whenever I first contacted him, so I was like, listen, I left this contract two months ago. They still haven't sent me my paycheck. He goes until it's been at least 90 days, just nobody is even going to look at this. And I mean, again, I was flabbergasted. I thought, how is it that all of these people that I've, that I saw as teenagers grew up to be these people that I really respect in their dream professions going after stuff without knowing whether they were even going to get money for any of the work that they did, right? Like going out and doing something and then just flat not getting paid for it, but they still keep doing it, which makes total sense to me now. I'm like, yeah, if you want that, then you take on whatever it means because it was satisfying to be doing that work. But whoa, was that a shift in like what I was thinking my life after college was going to be, <laughs> you know, it's like I'm supposed to be the nine to five, I don't know, go into the monotony. And yeah, that, so those two things, being identified as an artist and then seeing that money couldn't be the end goal because that could fall away, just, you know, shift the economy just a little bit and that could fall away with, you know, the snap of fingers. I came back just totally driven to suddenly fire up every project I wanted to do. Like, oh my gosh, I've got this amazing welding uh, welding shop and all of these amazing professors and I'm just gonna pull out every stop that I can to complete the work I had to do on campus. And uh, yeah, I luckily, it was at no, um, I guess, well, I think it was a surprise to my professors. They they fully embraced it. They went, we were waiting for you to like turn on the light. <laughs> you can do this. So I, yeah, that was, after that, my goal was get back to Dallas. You know, I had been up in the Northeast too long, but it was like, I'm an artist. By the way, I'm an artist and I'm going back to Dallas because I need to be around my family, um, which had also been just a goal for ever. <laughs> you produced some key parts of your work portfolio at that time. You know, right. your output had really um, expanded. So you hadn't just kind of said, oh, look, I'm going to, you hadn't gone to the store and bought a beret and said, oh, look, I'm going to be an artist. No, <laughs> no, you no. actually kind of built stuff with metal and various other right, uh, right. No, materials and then come back. Yeah, it wasn't a, it still wasn't a take on the role of, hey, I'm an artist. It was just a, okay. If you're if you're inside gonna say I'm an artist, then go work. Like go work for it. Go put the ideas down. Live that dedication, uh, and kind of see if that falls 
away, but I mean, nowhere else would I have had those kinds of resources to have the, the gallery shows on campus, to have the professors that knew exactly what to tell me to do to try to bend wood in that way. And, and all of those critiques and ability to learn from others where it was really a conversation, right? Because to this day, that's what, what I still long for is to just talk to people and learn what they see and what they're perceiving of the world and getting at least that last year, two semesters, um, to go soak all of this in. And I remember at my review, right, so you you do your big thesis show and they have this critique panel, which is basically you in front of, in front of a firing squad. At least that's, that's how you're thinking it's gonna go. <laughs> you walk into an empty gallery in front of your work and six or seven very respected people sitting in chairs in front of you that have been in there talking about your work before you get there. And, and you're just ready to be knocked down, right? <laughs> um, and I remember, so the, the, there was like the opening reception was happening that night after this critique. And I remember the graphic design um, professor looking at me and saying, why is your name not plastered across this floor? You are missing an opportunity. You better be getting over to that vinyl cutter and cutting it out as soon as you leave this building. And I, I, I you know, I, I didn't, have any idea like what to say after this series of people basically saying take this and run forward um and yeah that's that's where that's where i stood that's where what i did at that point i i just said okay how do how i don't i don't know how to get a gallery show i i never even looked at being really an artist until they gave me that little extra like nudge forward and I just emailed people I was like how do I get a gallery show in your gallery <laughs> they were nice enough to respond they weren't like go away little girl <laughs> I guess it's the funny thing like how much of this is mindset and, and encouragement from people around you what's possible in life and I think a, a lot of it is is due to to meeting um a supportive person or or just that difference in mindset. If you thought, look, I'm an artist now, I've got more practical problems. You know, where do I get a gallery? What stuff am I going to make? When and, and exhibit and how and all of those sort of things. So that switch kind of goes on. And right. Well, yeah, I, I definitely recall that moment when one of the galleries said, yes, would you be opening, open to doing your show in, I think it was March. I should remember this really well. But that was, that was my reason for oh my goodness, yes, I'm moving back to Dallas. I have to build the show. You know, that was, <laughs> was like, it came true, you know, and, and I walked into the metal shop in, uh, in Edgewood over on campus and, and my professor said, oh, did they give you a stipend? I was like, I was supposed to get a stipend. I know, I don't care. I got a show. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, and yeah, that was, that was the, the big change of, I think everything was just saying you're really doing this and and all it takes is for you to concentrate and and keep saying yes 
unless I can, unless I have to say no, say yes. <laughs> I liked your firing squad uh, metaphor before, and I want to talk about shooting at some stage <laughs> okay. as well, just because we need to get it all out there. The, 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 the list of, of things, you now know. Now you know why I don't list this when I introduce <laughs> people. <laughs> so you are actually quite a good shooter. Is, would that be fair to say? I, I've definitely had, um, had my day. I, so I grew up in Dallas, right? Uh, and my parents grew up in Dallas. My grandparents grew up in Dallas, right? And so, um, my dad, when he was a kid, went to shooting competitions, silhouette shooting competitions with my grandfather. And he wanted to pass on that practice with, with his kids. And it was kind of our daddy daughter sport, right? So on the weekends he would haul me out of bed at 6am and I would sleep in the truck on the way to the range. And, and I, um, became a competitive silhouette shooter. So not silhouettes like human silhouettes, they're little metal silhouettes roughly in the shape of some animals. We call it like a chicken line, a pig line, a turkey line and a ram line. And, I developed through first doing 22 rifles and then um, air rifles and then high power rifles as I got big enough and strong enough. So that ranges from 25 meters to 500 meters as standing targets. And I kind of just kept doing that regardless of where I was in the world. If I came back and there was a match, my dad would go, okay, get in the car. We're going, you know, to the Louisiana state match or some, <laughs> some fairly large match that I should have practiced for. But luckily, uh, I think the, well, actually I know that the balance in ice skating is said to help um, the balance in shooting and I'm sure the concentration also helps. So I found ice skating also because my mom didn't just out of the blue say, oh, let me go take you to some ice skating lessons. It turned out that my dad had read a book written by a famous Russian Olympic shooting champion that said one of the best ways to train balance for shooting was to go ice skating. Ah, I see. So there's the circle, right? So my dad says, oh, well, gee, if she goes ice skating, that'll help her out in her shooting. And I had, uh, what, I started shooting, I think when I was maybe nine uh, on sandbags, you know, very well, very well, um, supervised. It this was not a, you know, plunk stuff in the backyard type of thing. It was very well supervised, lots of rules and regulations. Uh, I'm a firm believer in responsible, uh, responsible gun ownership and, and certainly not for people, uh, just being enthusiasts to be enthusiasts without a really solid understanding of the responsibility that comes with it. So I wanted to add that before I continued with how young I started uh, shooting. But yeah, he, he started me in ice skating and then he lost his shooting buddy because <laughs> I was never around anymore. Um, but in the meantime, when I did come back, I was uh, fortunate to win some titles and set some records and had a lot of fun. I mean, I still really enjoy the network that I have through that range. I had some shoot offs with like, the Irish shooting team and the Australian shooting team, actually. Uh, it was kind of fun because I was best under pressure. I mean, it ties into everything else, right? So the shoot-off is when you've ha you have the same score from the main match, but they give you 30 seconds to take a shot and whoever hits it wins. And 
I mean, I loved getting in a situation where I liked winning outright, but when I had a shoot off, it didn't matter if the guy was four times my age. I was like, ah, I'm going to hit it before he does. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it made for quite a little reputation for me in shoot offs. <laughs> Surely with shooting is that divided into men and women still? There's no difference, is there? Or so is there in the main championship title, there's no difference. But then they have subdivisions where they also give awards, but they're not taken. It's not like you're only in the women's division. You know, you're in the overall championship. And if you happen to be high woman, you'll get that award type of thing. Do you still do it? When I can. I um, So high power rifle for a long time, I couldn't go out and do because of the shoulder surgeries. Um, but I have been able to do that in more recent years. It's mainly just schedule wise, you know, it's a full day. I mean, at least a full day, just going out to a practice match would be a full day. And then if you go to a big match, then you're spending four, five days focused solely on that. And I mean, 6am until eight or 9pm at night outside. So it's exhausting. <laughs> You have quite a, a toolkit of things to do to unwind here. I don't know whether it's shooting or skating or, or creating <laughs> art or spending time with your family. So. so I think at this point, for me, the best part about going shooting is spending time with my dad. So we're sitting here having a conversation. We had a conversation about having a conversation before we started here. <laughs> it's quite noisy and we're sitting in a, basically, for the listeners, a, a glass-walled room and, and in a co-working space and they're tearing the place down and moving furniture <laughs> around. And, and there's some guy, some guy that keeps sitting right next to the door looking at us recording an interview and talking loudly on his mobile phone about something. So, oh, that's <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it's a glass room. We shouldn't throw rocks. <laughs> we could break it down real fast. Nice. Are you also a pun champion as well? I need yeah, to know that. Is that just something? I try not that, to be. Yeah, I make, I make cheesy jokes. <laughs> we were talking earlier about... A, you know, what's this podcast all about? And, and it's to have conversations with people who've had interesting lives and get their perspective on life and, and all of that. But it's also a, a seemingly a rarity to, to actually get a chance to have a conversation with people and not just, uh, you know, looking at social media where we're kind of reacting to stuff that's going right. on. We see stuff that's outrageous and then react to that rather than actually talking about what I think is important in life, which is meaning and people and relationships and other stuff, whatever that love and whatever right, else it happens right. to be. Or even getting down to the details of why something's inflammatory. What's the motivation behind why, why something is, why I'm offended at something or why I'm reactionary to something. Um, the analysis side of it, we don't seem to do a lot lately. I think that was actually a huge part of, when I learned how to interview people for, because so they give you the opportunity to be like a senior interviewer, which is kind of a secondary interview round with the Yale process. And in that you get trained on, okay, how are you going to identify a person's responses and how you feel about them, how you think that they would fit into the general campus and be able to accomplish the work. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do that in half an hour? That's crazy. I'm not going to know what to say. And actually, it was amazing how much this, this aspect of the analysis part of being able to reflect and talk and not immediately need it to be a headline or a soundbite or, you know, 
some simple little idea that everyone's going to understand immediately. Uh, that was huge in allowing me to understand who the person was. And if I couldn't get that, that was when I was like, oh, I, what do I do now? Like, why can't I get them to push past this wall? This is like, this is like meeting someone and all you get to do is scroll through their Instagram feed. Like, <laughs> you don't get to ask them anything behind that. So, um, yeah, luckily, luckily we still have people like you trying to do this. I want to know what, what your key go-to questions were as well. How you managed to oh. <laughs> Or is it just your disarming way of, uh, of interacting with people? How did you, or is it just obvious? <laughs> I think it's all probably, well, it's probably similar to the way you approach things, right? In that situation, well, admissions and everything gets the whole backstory of people. Uh, I know I never was able to have the backstory. So I knew nothing about the person coming in the room, which was great. I knew just the basics, like, so that I could recognize, yes, it's a female, <laughs> you know, this is supposed to be the name. <laughs> and, um, and you start just like you would start a conversation and try to just go from there and in, in rolling off of interesting points to elicit responses that can just show you more about who they are and how they do think about things versus whatever questions they expected you were going to ask. I have not made someone cry. I didn't do that. <laughs> Is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. It seemed like it was quite helpful. Way, apparently. I mean, I, I, I presume that um, she has not made a whole bunch of people cry either. <laughs> I don't think it was expected by any of, the, any of the people. I think it's fascinating that you can have... Um, as you were saying, if you do, if you are having conversation and you're, you're curious as a person, as an approach to life, that's a great characteristic. That kind of became the mo of the non-traditionals on campus. I think it's still the mo because we just kind of go around and have these conversations that you think, oh, I'm not supposed to talk about this at dinner, or whether it's politics or gender issues or uh, the latest, I don't know, big big thing on campus. Um, or racial issues, or we were not afraid to just say, okay, tell me what you think about that. Really, well, how does that interact with this concept that I'm coming to this conversation with? And nobody walked away saying, oh my goodness, I'm never talking to her again because she was willing to tell me her nuanced point of view in a way that wanted to listen and understand if maybe that point of view needed shifting. Um, I love engaging in conversations with people like that. I've had those conversations in like taxi cabs and then I, I get out and I think, wow, that taxi driver may be just happy I got out. <laughs> you can have a very profound conversation uh, with a taxi driver. I think, I think that they're up for it. And sometimes depending on how you get into it, you can cover off any, any issue. Right. Yeah. Luckily, I don't, I think I've made myself like a caricature about conversations before, but I do, I mean, I remember riding with a taxi driver and it was a long ride and we got into um, some conversations about a lot of the racial tensions happening right now in the U.S. and how culture was grappling with it, not grappling with it, um, kind of the nuances of the identities that were most at odds with each other. 
a lot of, I mean, a lot of details. This was probably an hour and a half ride because I was going from New Haven to JFK and uh, or LaGuardia. And yeah, he never seemed to take that stance of who are you? So I'm very white, right? He never took that stance of like, who are you as a white girl to be having this conversation with me? Which I thank him for a lot because I know that one of the biggest um I know one of the biggest things that I think about when I go into a conversation on racial issues with people is just, am I going to be perceived as trying to educate myself off of the person I'm talking to? And I try my best to not be putting the person I'm talking to into that position, like trying to have just a meaningful conversation that can be, uh, I don't know, appreciated from both sides. <laughs> and resolve, move forward, right? Like trying to, trying to be a social changer. <laughs> well, I think there's still a lot of power in conversations. And, uh, you know, if you do talk to the normal person, I think just the, the structure of just living in a society, generally, if you go and meet someone in person, then they're a lot more reasonable than certainly online, which wouldn't be very hard at right. the moment. <laughs> so I think it's refreshing to actually just uh, meet and talk to people and have a space where you can do that and, and um, remind people that, I think probably most people, most people probably are open-minded at least to some degree, and and realise that they don't know everything, and and are curious about what's going on in the world, or at least happy to hear another point of view from time to time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're all grappling with perceptions, and and sometimes kind of blind to where those perceptions might uh, come from, or be astray or be contingent on something else that is actually the problem to being able to break through those barriers and see um and and see why you know why is this an issue i finding myself more and more looking at things in life being like oh i just like this social construct is just messing with it all <laughs> what's happening <laughs> It's a strange time to be alive and um, certainly something I'm grappling with on the show and, and outside is um, this specific era. I, I think every era has got its own unique things and, you know, I was talking about Torvald and Dean later on. In my childhood, I grew up with the threat of nuclear war <laughs> constantly <laughs> around here yeah, growing up in the UK in the 80s. Uh, you know, we used to have ads on TV saying if a nuclear warhead comes, you get under the kitchen table and you'll be fine kind of thing. I think that's what I took away from it. But that's terrifying. That is really terrifying. Let's I'm hope sure. we don't return to that. <laughs> but, uh. Well, you know, maybe those ads, they can dust them off. We might need them again. Um, so there, there was well. lots of – so it's a very bizarre time I think to be um, uh, be alive you know there's a certain thing about anti-intellectualism you know that you know that anything to do with intellectualism and this kind of is autocracy and it's control and it's faceless and you know we've got to react we've got to get away from from that and it's all about now just primal fears and instincts which is <laughs> which is horrible as well because that's not well right. life is well, i mean those are all predicated off of some sort of source right whether or not it be those little nuances that we get from birth you know i, I was so this is a, a less hostile side of that issue um but still talking about these these primal issues and those questions like nature and nurture and what's coming from what and um when my oldest son was one I remember turning on, uh, we must have had, I don't know, Amazon Prime or something. And I was turning on Caillou and 
this um, Lego Duplo commercial came on and the entire time it was like the boys could build airplanes and all this and the girls were playing tea. And one girl put a Lego on top of the other and then collapsed in like exhaustion about all this play. And every time it showed boys, there were like these boy colors. And every time it showed girls, there were these girl colors. And I was just like, what is, I mean, I was livid. I was just, uh, how is this possible? Cause it, I mean, it was all, it looked like a good time in the commercial, okay? I was nitpicking, obviously. I was overanalyzing, which I do a lot. Um, but it really hit me, like, at one, this is what he's seeing as how his identity is supposed to be shaped. And, I mean, and then that just radiates out into all of these issues, right? Like, how we're supposed to be reacting to the issues that we're talking about now a lot of those reactions that we're having that are visceral and, and quote primal are really just predicated on some message that we got when we were very little and haven't debased, um, haven't questioned to an extent that we could be, be thoughtful about where we really position ourselves in the argument now. People might be reacting to something, but you know, I think the right um, the right response to that is to try and educate yourself a bit more about the issue. If you really don't know anything about it, then you've got to get to the bottom of it and try and understand the nuances of it. I think it's also about being honest with yourself and understanding the nuances of your own bias towards perceptions. Um, I know for me that changes the read on a whole lot of stuff that I do. And I I really enjoy this for some reason. It sounds a little bit like... I don't know, masochistic to try to reread things with different constructs of like how, where my perception lies and where, you know, what's my point of view when I'm reading it this way and what's my point of view when I'm reading it that way and this third way and fifth way and 18th way. Um, like I said, overthinker. But it does help me to eventually go, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this because for some reason I think this other thing at the end of the day is supposed to happen. But what if that's never what's supposed to happen? Um, ironically, this brings me to Burning Man <laughs> so much uh, because going out there and being in that, in that economy that wasn't based off of money was one of those mindset shifters. Like, oh, how do I... How am I expecting people to act when the economy is not financial, it's not monetary? Um, now, obviously, in that case, it's unsustainable because you are in the desert and, and whatever somebody's giving you is because they hauled it in. <laughs> but it's, it's an amazing concept to experience because you suddenly have this shift in how I'm experiencing the world with other people. Like, if I'm not driven off of money and I don't need money to have any status, what, what's, what's valuable here? Um, and it's beautiful because, you know, what's valuable there is the experience <laughs> and a ton of art. <laughs> There's a point about um, kind of a post-success way of looking at the world or a post-monetary way of looking at the world where um, if you say, okay, if what was important certainly 
when I grew up was making lots of money and having a prestigious job. I mean, certainly growing up in a working class family, my, my parents were more happy that I went to university as one of the first people that did that after high school, or the, the first in our family and, and did all of that. But, you know, I think it's a fascinating era to be alive because this is kind of post money thing. So, so if everybody just went and tried to maximize their, their, their money and monetary gains at all costs, that's not a very nice world no. to live in. No, in fact, we'd, we'd have no culture. I mean, this was, this is actually something that I have thought a lot about recently is that, um, I think cities, especially in the U S where we've come these cookie cutter cities with all of these box stores, um, we're now in a place where we're having to turn back around and say, oh, why don't we have culture here? What is culture? And and I wanna kinda like slap some people aside the head and be like, guess what? Capitalism doesn't build culture. Pay in, pay to play doesn't build culture. Like you can't make it happen like that, right? Culture has to be a thing that can then I mean, definitely you can only have capitalism if you have culture in the sense of like a city, right? Because if you don't have something bonding that group of people into that um, geographic space, then that economy can just go at the drop of a hat. Um, and I think that's what you're, what we're definitely seeing Dallas grappling with is like communicating from the culture focused citizens to the capitalism-focused citizens, why, you know, why they still need culture? But I think they also know why they still need culture because they know they like. Well, gee, why are people wanting to go over to Fort Worth anytime they visit the area? Because we know that there's like a unique culture over there that, at the end of the day, whenever every city had the Nordstroms and the Neemans and the this and then that Dallas being a shopping city was no longer the attraction and any suburb had the big mall. So why would we come into downtown Dallas? Uh, well, what does, what does Dallas have as a culture is now the big you know, question, um, which is beautiful. It's super exciting time to add to that kind of crazy time to live in, um, to see the, the idea of what, what does art, what does expression, what do identities bring to a geographic location and how are we all predicated on making sure that there's still space held for them, for us, for everybody. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I just kept talking and I'm not sure I got to the point there, but definitely the a thing The point is that there isn't head. a point. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. are waiting for the bullet-pointed list. That'll come next week when I try and summarize this and write a LinkedIn <laughs> article about it. I'm still brainwalking in this idea. I'm still brainwalking. We've started on Dallas now, and you recently were part of a thing, and I want to make sure I'm saying it right. There's the Art Walk West. Yes. And, and I, I mentioned it right back at the start, so I want to catch people up to what you've been up to, and we'll talk about your projects in a okay. second. Uh, you were in what looked like an industrial s space with a pair of special skates on, painting something with those. Well, people looked on and said, "This is cool." Right, <laughs> right, right. Tell us more about that. <laughs> okay, right. So I was fortunate enough to have the invite from another artist, Erica Felicella, 
um, to participate in a group exhibition that was held over at Fabrication Studios off of Fabrication Street and um, supported by the galleries in West Dallas and organized under that um, title, Art Walk West. And so for that um, exhibition, I laid out canvas across the concrete, secured it so that it wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't slide out from under me, and then very ritualistically, very methodically, uh, went in circles for hours. <laughs> I think about six hours. I, I often relate it to being kind of a human spiral graph. Um, very much I'm still experimenting with where that leads me, but I created that day four canvases uh, from just this practice of moving moving through the world and circling back on my own world and um, and searching for balance and, yeah, tranquility. It was really hot in there. I was really searching to be, <laughs> to be <laughs> tranquil. Searching for a glass of water and uh, some air conditioning. <laughs> well, you know, the nice part about skating is you make your own wind as you go. Right. So it was cooling me off if I just kept going. <laughs> just to really explain, and we'll put a link to, to this, uh, but you basically have these special skates and mm -hmm. you put – paint on them paint. and go yep. across a, a blank canvas and right. move and do various movements and that's captured by the paint on them right basically just i it's like if you were walking with paint on your shoes and you'd have footprints mm. only inherently what i have is lines right because the wheels are constantly in contact with the surface so i have tracings that are lines and they they're called tracings because you trace back over them right like i went in a circle and then i keep going in that same circle and my goal is to continue to hold the rhythm or the balance of whatever motion i'm making uh for multiple passes to to kind of read the result i mean while i'm doing it i'm not focused on reading the result as much as i am about perfecting that sense of balance because i can't see the mark as i'm making it Right, I would really throw off my balance if I was like staring down, bent over, <laughs> trying to figure out how perfectly I was. Because once you make the move, at the end of the day, you can't change it. Right, the the paints, the paints laid, the motion is made. So you have to search for the rest of the signals in your body to understand um, your consistency and your sentiment about how how well that motion is going. Um, which is just a really wonderful time of introspection, kind of focus. I'm like in my head focused now as, I, as I'm thinking about that. And and two other things are happening. There's some sort of emergency vehicle going by right. and the, the guy, mobile phone talker, has walked up in the window ready to make another call. So I don't know. I think we all need those moments. <laughs> nice, right. Where you're nerv nervous about that. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking as you're talking about, you know, athletes and artists and maybe business people too, you get a sense of your own body and mind. Maybe that is, is unique or you get a closer appreciation of that. I, I don't think you could be a good skater if you were permanently in your head and you weren't feeling what was going on around you. If you were thinking right. about your shopping list or doing something, like, or, <laughs> right. or do you? I don't know. Right? Like, no, uh, I think that's. I think that's um, probably a very good assumption because I, what I've come to realize are all the funny little clues that I didn't realize made a difference to being out there. So um, the sound of the ice the feel of the blade versus the feel of the friction on wheels, uh, the, the feel of the ice 
a long time ago, I kind of realized that there was this meditative quality. If I was on bumpy ice somehow through multiple layers of hardened leather and an insole and an orthotic and a steel plate and this, I don't know, two to four inch gap between my foot and the ice surface, I could feel every imperfection and how sensitive my feet were to recognizing every little bump that was being read by this blade underneath me. Just, that was mind blowing to me, you know? And just to be able to stand in the middle of silence on this frosty surface and feel all these things through, you know, being filtered, but somehow coming across so clear. Um, and when I first started out trying to figure out how to record tracings, in a meaningful way, or just pull people's attentions to attention to the fact that skates leave tracings. Um, I started thinking about painting with my skating blades, and when I went ahead and said, "Well, I'll just put them on my hands. How hard could that be? It's that'll work." Oh my goodness! Like I realized how possibly difficult it was for me to make smooth curves with my hands because they just they couldn't read anything that was happening they weren't sensitive enough in that respect yet um so to solve that i developed little grips so that i can train myself to skate on my hands so <laughs> which is a work in progress i also realized that my notoriously weak arms needed to improve in order to really successfully skate on my hands but it it allowed me to go ahead and start making those paintings because I did get out on the ice with these grips and suddenly had to power myself with feeling in my palm what my feet are used to feeling. And it still blows my mind, like, how, how are we that perceptive? Um, I, and I think it's kind of like that exercise where you blindfold yourself and then you try to have somebody walk you through a space and you realize how much clearer you hear things and how how much different the energy coming off the person you're trying to follow feels because you can't see them and so you've got all this heightened awareness um very much i'm now playing in that space with all of the work that i do around skating and trying to pull out um sounds is my next really big thing but i i want people to feel that flight that is so difficult to write about and is so generically described as flight or <laughs> or magic or it's it's incredibly frustrating to me that skating has gone in this genre of just hmm, like spectacle entertainment that i mean i think it i think there are a lot of really entertaining things about skating i think that it has so much more to offer that right now is just being obscured with the concept that entertainment comes in this package of like the music from instruments and the lighting from theatrical and now put people that are trying to perform essentially like these amazing dancers that we all have access to watching on TV. But inherently that movement is not necessarily what a skater has been trained for. So while there's a lot of skaters that do amazing, wonderful job of putting dance on the ice, I have full respect for that. I also just question like, at the end of the day, aren't we just mimicking 
all of these other disciplines that we are oversaturated with amazing performances for. So now just, just saying like, oh, but now it's on ice is not a thing. You know, it's like, that's not enough. <laughs> Nobody thinks that's insanely cool anymore, unfortunately. Like I want everyone to think that that's insanely cool. That uh, sounds like a pitch meeting at some sort of event in Hollywood before. Okay, we need something else. We need some. let's put it on ice. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> let's have people skating on their hands. <laughs> I think that, yeah, that's it's kind of like, okay, the circus, the circus. Um, but we have amazing circuses. We'll put The Bachelor on there. We'll have, uh, come in, we'll have Big Brother. You know, right, come right. We need to combine these things wrong. somehow. I would love to see all of this happen. You've right? got, <laughs> you got to sing. It's a talent competition where you've got to sing. Um, it's the voice on it. You know, so. Let's put everyone in a city that's just made of ice and see how they get around for a week surviving solely by living on the ice. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I think these are hilariously entertaining ideas. Um, but I think it's not necessarily preserving um, the interest in the sport for the long run. We started talking a little bit about Dallas uh, as well. And I usually ask all, all the guests to try and help me understand, help other people maybe around the world or even in Dallas, as I've discovered. Not everybody knows everything about this place that they, they live. You know, there's a lot of things that are unexpected depending on where you're living and who you know. Um, so what is the heart and soul of Dallas? How do you explain this place? What's it Oh, good question. Oh, my goodness. That, uh, I think, is... Impossible to put into a soundbite. Uh, I'm, I'm like multi-generationally stationed in Dallas. So my, I have two Texas Rangers in my mom's side, like the original Texas Rangers, not the baseball team. And, <laughs> and then my dad's side founded a town out um, west of here. So I feel like for me, Dallas is about diversity and and accessing, I mean, I'm hoping it's gonna be always about accessing these different sides of, of life and your own personality within one little um, metroplex, which is tough because I say metroplex and then I include Fort Worth and everything, so. Um, <laughs> You can tell I'm a Dallasite because when I say Fort Worth, I'm like, ah, you know. <laughs> but um, it's, yeah, it's funny because whenever I have people in town, I feel like I default to like, oh, they'll really remember this trip if I take them over to Fort Worth. <laughs> which, which I I'm, do the same thing. I'm hoping that that is um, not always going to be my default. I live near the Trinity River Project, so I'm super excited about that. Uh, I took my... Uh, last visitor in town all around every district of Dallas. This was one thing that I was really excited about whenever I moved back was that I felt like, I feel like, I still feel like this. I feel like the city has been in a decade of change and it's still moving forward. And the change makers are like the 30 and 40 and 50 year olds, maybe even, I mean, I know mainly 30 and 40 year olds that I feel like are just these huge leaders in making shifts in the community and pushing it forward, which is super engaging, especially coming from the Northeast where I felt like I was really stuck behind the 70 year olds were making all the decisions. And so to be down in Dallas and see this new way of 
I don't know that it's really new, but new way of districting for me, because when I grew up here, I didn't realize where the design district was versus Bishop Arts versus I knew Deep Ellum. That was probably the only thing that was really clearly identified. Um, but to be able to do the farmer's market and then arts district and the design district and like navigate through all these little places and that the neighborhoods are similarly getting their own little identities and bringing forward the quirks and the diversity of every little area is awesome. Like I think that going forward hopefully will be what Dallas is about because that metropolitan name that was um, kind of Dallas being the big city has to come with an cultural diversity being easily accessible and, and, and not this monoculture overlay. Like, oh, you go to Dallas and you get this experience. Like, no, Dallas is not supposed to be one experience. It's supposed to be an ever evolving like collage of eccentric experiences and just super eclectic. Um, and yeah, that's, so that's what I think that should be the crux of Dallas. <laughs> That's great. Sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, current projects you're working on that you want listeners to hear about. I know you're doing Soundscape. Soundscape, is Soundscape which is um, an audiovisual project that I'm extremely excited about. And I was raising funds on Hatch Fund to be able to make this happen. It's easily over a decade that I've been thinking about this project needing to, to happen the last three years specifically really trying to think about what logistics I need to, to have um, in order to see it into reality. And so I've brought together kind of a, a cast of characters from multiple different parts of the world to help. First, we, we went out and we sampled the sounds of the skates. So the idea at the base of this project is that when I realized that my experience on the ice took sound into a different place where it was my compass telling me where my feet were because visually I was no longer able to understand where the horizon or my feet were, that then became a tool that I was like, maybe this is how I get people to fly. Maybe this is how I get people to realize why people can be so fascinated and enthralled and passionate about skating again. And can I give someone walking into a gallery space a visual and a space to, to kind of recline, because I don't want anyone falling over, um, <laughs> where, they can, where they can lift off and let their auditory senses guide them through space in a new way. Uh, and specifically led by instead of instruments using my blades against the ice as the instruments because because that at the root is what I'm reflecting upon. Um, so luckily, one of my friends from Italy is, uh, is an amazing composer and audio engineer. And so he came over in order to help me get all these sounds done. And he's um, the composer on the project. And then um, a wonderful videographer from Turkey is helping me with all of the visuals, um, which are going to be amazing because I'm kind of using my specific spin on ways in which I've captured skating 
in all of my experiments to try to debase the balance of the viewer um, safely. Safely, I've got a plan for how viewers are going to be reclined so that you know you're you're not injuring anybody. The idea is that they're not scared, that they're free. <laughs> Freedom and scared don't go together. So, so um, yeah, that project is going to debut in December of this year. And right now we're in lots of work with post-production of, yeah, um, after capturing all of this, but it's gonna be amazing. And we were fortunate enough whenever I had the main, so now the Hatch Fund campaign is in like the residual time afterwards where people can still donate, but I, I got the target goal. And so now the donations just go towards the stretch goal. So with that target goal time, because that was that time crunch period where it was like, please help me or, or I won't get any of it. Um, so thank you to everyone that helped me. And we got invited to debut it at an experimental art ice convention that's happening in Holland in December. So I'm super thrilled about that. And that really said, that gave me that pressure on the timeline. Because otherwise I didn't know I booked these people to start doing the project because they had timelines that were going to restrict what I was able to um, accomplish or win. Like the, the composer goes on tour again because he's still a professional skater. And so I was like, if I don't do it now, it's going to be another year. <laughs> and then to have uh, this invitation to debut it in Holland come where I then said, okay, and once I get that footage, I have to make it happen um, has been just really a blessing. Um, yeah, just incredibly fortunate. Those timelines and deadlines that make stuff happen. Yes, yeah, I need them. I, <laughs> people can lie to me and say, like, I need it tomorrow, and that will help me be more productive today. <laughs> you want to, people to, to fly and be free and be doing that on a timeline? I mean, obviously, I'm not expecting them to be in the gallery forever. So, yeah, the, the idea is that it's, I think the the musical component of it, and I say musical, but I'm still talking about sounds from the skates, is probably a four to five minute piece. But then there's kind of the the intro part and and the recovery part because I don't want people like walking out and not in straight lines. But uh, <laughs> I've I've made some pretty dizzying videos in my <laughs> in my span of experimentation in this. So. Uh, yeah, I'm imagining that there, there's going to be this seven-minute period of kind of flight out of the physical world that you walk in um, situated in and, and you kind of take this trip. Any other projects you want to talk about? I feel that like there's like – yeah, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I have all these other projects in my, in, in my lineup. So one of the projects that I am um, also working to see come to fruition but not with the same – Timeline, yeah, actually, please, somebody give me a timeline on this project, uh, is, I, is a project I experimented with in Italy, what, uh, over a year ago. And the idea was how do we bring forward the impact of art in culture um, to kind of a tangible level, to a visible level, to a measurable uh, space. And so I created this art experience confessional. And the idea was that I'd take this, I mean, it was a really lo-fi prototype, right? 
So I took this big cardboard box <laughs> with a little tissue paper door and the words art, art experience confessional on the side uh, and this you know partition in the middle with the holes in it so that I would be anonymous to the person into a gallery space in Venice. And we started asking people to come in. And the idea was that they come in and they talk about one piece of work. Um, of course, we were, we were getting to this point because we had tried to go out and ask people, what does art mean to you? What is, tell me an experience, da, da, da. And all you get are these completely nebulous answers that, or, or worse, like, oh, I know nothing about art. Oh, art has no impact on me. Yeah, I go to the galleries, but it's just to take my girlfriend. Um, or like, I'm not from a family that was really educated in that, so I don't know anything. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's not, the can't, well, there's two options. It could be true, but as an artist, please tell me this is not true. <laughs> I know this is not true, um, and, but how do I find out? And so I decided I wanted to be able to brainwalk with people that were in front of art. And that was how I was gonna do it. Like take this idea of confessional, put people into a space that they felt kind of private so that they could feel anonymous and tell me what they were seeing. And, and surely I will get some kind of information this way. And everyone was like, this is a ludicrous idea. This is, gonna, this is ridiculous, but it's gonna be funny to watch you try. So, <laughs> so um, surprise, I mean, I don't know, surprising or not surprising, this was phenomenally successful. Like the, the insights that people would cobble together once they took the time to just tell me what they were looking at. And, and that was really, every time somebody would walk in, I would say, okay, I can't see the piece of work. I need you to describe what you see. And I would let them take on the conversation from there. Literally, I would just repeat things, especially when somebody would walk in speaking Italian. Like, I didn't know how to go deeper into anything that they were telling me. So I was just repeating their words, which led me to find out that I had to tell them, and by the way, I actually cannot see and do not know what you're looking at because they thought that I, at first, that I was helping lead them to an interpretation, right? I kept getting the, oh, thank you so much for helping me understand that. And I was like, I didn't, I, what? I didn't help you do, I mean, I helped you see what you understood. And, um, and I, and in, in analyzing this prototyping process, I realized that the framework around contemporary art was really what had to be shifted for people to allow themselves to be the experts of their own experience. Um, and that is, I think, still the way we're going to break through this concept that art doesn't have an impact on someone because they are still, they being anybody that says this, anybody that doesn't answer the question about whether or not art has an impact on their experience in life, uh, are only saying that because the reflective space feels vulnerable. And when you take yourself out of the historical art framework, which we've been conditioned to expect when we walk into a museum where you get a long description and all this stuff about the artist and how it's supposed to be read, which is valuable for historic art, great. But when you get in a contemporary space and put all those barriers up, 
all the people's fears about, oh, I don't know art history. Oh, I should know this about somebody. I'm spending half an hour trying to read this plaque instead of focusing on the experience of the work become huge barriers to someone feeling empowered in that space. Um, and so now that's kind of like my mission is to bring this art experience confessional to, I don't know if it's gonna end up being like a pop-up thing, but basically this traveling experience that people can walk in and compose really their statement about any work that they're standing in front of. Uh, you see so many photos on Instagram of like how people love to share art. There's rarely ever a comment. If there's a comment about what they're posting, it's just like where they are in the gallery. Nothing about what their experience with the work is. And this frustrates me to no end. So I'm, I'm kind of driven to this project, eventually making it where people <laughs> go in this space, take the two minutes to brainwalk with kind of the art therapist <laughs> um, to find out what their read on a contemporary work is. And then when they step out, that little sentence that they composed ends up being the comment that's on all those photos, you know, like kind of fills that space in so that we have this running list of information about how any given work in, in our environment is impacting people, you know? How, how valuable would that be to turn around to the, those that are focused on the capitalism in the community and say, okay, this project got funded, here's how it's affecting people. And have them be able to read all of this would be so cool. I mean, maybe it's just me. I think it would be so cool. <laughs> it does sound cool. Um, so you mentioned capitalism again. Let's get back to Burning Man. Um, since uh, you started talking about the default world. I hadn't heard that expression, <laughs> but I wrote it down when you said it and I thought, let's talk about the default world. And this Burning Man is going to be notorious for probably the wrong reasons. Right. Um, fatality there um, this year. But how that wasn't your experience. Right. No, I, I was uh, f fortunate to not be present during that part of the time. Um, but so they refer to default world as, as this, like any of of this real world as well, being the default should, world. We should say, and people may not know what Burning Man is. Oh, so maybe that's we true. Should start okay. to, and, and why are we there and what is it? And, right. And okay. So there. Burning Man is a pop-up art city and they try to be clear to say it's not a festival. It's not some other form of a festival. Um, but it is this kind of idea of how utopia might be con constructed. And, uh, and the concept being that whenever you're in very unhospitable environment trying to survive with a collective of people, you um, will band together, you will come together and, um, and make those unique changes in whatever relations that you need to, to have a harmonious community. So it's been going on for decades. Um, I had heard of it, had not thought that I would be going this year until, <laughs> until I was amazingly um, awarded a ticket and a stipend to create art by Glass Tire. So I'm 
super thankful for them. This was another one where it was like, say yes. There, there are so few reasons to say no. Say yes, this is awesome. Um, the reason I wasn't there for uh, the actual burn was because I already had the soundscape um, trip booked. I mean, I you know, and I had Marco coming in from Italy, and I had the ice paid for for Turk to do the videos, and I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't put that off, but I can't say no to Burning Man. I guess this is the test of the commitment. Like, can I make them both happen? And so this was my experience. Like, okay. You have to be super prepared because everything you take out there, you have to pack out again. So where, where is it? Let's even get to the... Okay, it's three hours north of Reno yeah. in Nevada. It's on a salt flat desert, right? Extremely inhospitable, right? <laughs> um, and, and kind of the rules of the show are you should be only coming out there if you have um, like to build or something to contribute to the community. There's a lot of ways to contribute to the community. Tickets are expensive. <laughs> uh, packing for it and getting yourself out there is pretty expensive. So you have to be fairly committed to, to making that all work, which gave me some security in thinking, okay, you know, people are there intentionally. They're, if they're there intentionally, they're intentionally there to have an enjoyable time for themselves. Um, and I, and I did find that the case, like I, all the fears that I had going out there about what could be imagined. Cause I think a lot of rumors go around about what happens at various festivals and things. And, and maybe they're not all rumors, but at the end of the day, what I found was that it was a, an amazing experience with a lot of wonderful people that were there to get away from the economics of the default world and place themselves into this altered personality of like, what happens when I'm just out there to give good energy and be a good person? And watch these amazing scenes is like, you get into this whiteout situation and you have these insane visual structures that, I mean, the commitment to making that city is phenomenal in itself. Uh, yeah. It, it was a joy to be in and to survive in and then having to turn around and go back into San Francisco and fly out of the airport at 5 a.m. the day after I left Burning Man was horrendous. <laughs> I was like, I'm so over civilization. <laughs> Why am I back? <laughs> but um, yeah, after the adjustment period, I have reaccepted civilization is, is required, uh, but... <laughs> It was really wonderful to see such a large scale experiment on what it means to um, to be a community. You know, whenever you're in that, like forming community that fast, right? It's a total of an eight day event. And, um, and there's this huge focus on keeping the environment pure for the next year to be able to have the festival, so nothing can be left on the playa. You can't even dump your water on the playa. It's, it's in, and people self-police, I mean, between each other in, in that respect of like not leaving uh, your junk or dropping stuff. You have to haul out your own gray water, which is also an interesting thing. Uh, and then the other side of it was this really interesting body positive uh, dynamic 
right? Because you're in an environment that requires certain clothing, like the mask and the, uh, the breathing mask and the goggles and boots, because apparently you can get playa foot, which I didn't know about until I was like trying to walk around in bare feet. They were like, don't do that. Your feet will be completely cracked, which makes sense. Like if you apply salt to your feet constantly in the middle of heat, you, you will not be happy. So, um, so you have these people walking around with goggles and mask and boots and that's it. Cause really none of the rest of it is required. <laughs> so if you know, like that shift in this body positive, except everybody's, uh, presence in crazy costumes in no costumes in regular clothing was also a really wonderful little escape and shift of mindset of like, not just saying that you're not judging anyone's appearance, but actually not judging someone's appearance for the negative. Even if it's just for the fact that when everyone's out there in this altered uh, way of dressing, and there's no money being tossed around, you don't know where anyone stands in the default world. Like that could be the CEO of Microsoft. I mean, realistically, like you can't recognize anyone because they're under a mask and and like headdress, right? So, <laughs> so uh, and then they take on burner names. So they actually take on different names while they're out there, which kind of forces you to just accept everyone as a new person and be nice and uh, be hospitable. Yeah. It's, it's weird because I, so I do, I'm just for the record, I do not do drugs. I don't do <laughs> like, but I feel like when I talk about Burning Man that it sounds like I was on drugs. <laughs> I think it's impossible to describe the event without sounding that way because it's such an altered state of, of community experience. Well, I think anyone that's camped at a music festival before, which maybe a number of people have done, and I, I get that they're increasingly commercialized and it's harder to find um, or recreate those uh, festival experiences where you can go along with like-minded people and, and it's not about spending your life savings and buying stuff that you don't need. Um, so I, I think people can kind of get that. I mean, I'm certainly a big fan of music festivals, given those caveats we've just talked about, and, and you can get into the... Um, and even when I used to DJ in the electronic music scene 25 years ago in Sydney, you know, in warehouses and things like that, it certainly is an altered um, reality despite all the other things that people may or may not do on the evening. But just taking people to a space where you create its own rules uh, and it's about enjoying the music and it's expected that you're going to talk and be civil to people and all right, of those absolutely. other right. sort of things. And maybe there's some escapism in all of that as well, but... Um, I I think at the same time it's it's also a way of you know I'll ask you I mean what what did you take away from that to, I mean is this going to be something that people need to go and, and escape from their real life so what can be brought back from Burning Man and these other types of experiences I mean I think it it's generally agreed upon that the idea is that it's not necessarily about escaping it's about gaining those insights that you can bring back right so the ways that you were nice to everyone and the ways that you just appreciated being alive and living through these amazing 
visual spectacles and appreciating other people's work and appreciating other people's kindness and being in presence. Uh, and then applying that whenever you, after you get past the contempt for the civilized world, I <laughs> like trying to really move away from being frustrated uh, by kind of the class structures of the regular world and instead finding ways to break those down, even if it's just, you know, with your very hyper-local community. My goal, I think, is to hopefully attend again, hopefully, probably many times. I feel like that was a theme. Everyone that I knew that I met there that had gone for the first time were like, okay, when are we going again? <laughs> uh, but to just continue that visit to this kind of magical space, Magical is such an undefined word, uh, but it's hard to find these really specific. Somebody was saying like English doesn't have very many words. And then we looked it up and it has like a whole bunch of words. And we started looking up then strange English words. And we're like, oh, English seems simple because nobody actually knows it. <laughs> nobody knows. The, we use a very small amount of words. So it's hard to describe amazing experiences without using like cool and magical. Um, but my cool and magical <laughs> trek out there in the future, I think will always be about re-grounding myself in how I can better the world whenever I'm coming back into my community. Normally at this stage of the show, we normally try and talk about life lessons. And I feel like we've covered off a, a, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of them so, so far. Um, so before, before we get into to life lessons, I always wanted to um, start asking people, I think, you know, in this, since we're sitting at a table here, who would be at your um, fantasy uh, dinner party table of, of guests alive and dead? Of, of, of people throughout history, I mean, that are living or, or not. Oh, that's... That's an amazing question. It would probably be my relatives, my ancestors, and my um, even just my grandparents. But I, if I could have a tape recorder, yeah, <laughs> um, and being able to have insights into all of their experiences that kind of led me to where I am today in some way. I guess I'm talking about tracings again. <laughs> But in some in some other abstracted way, uh, yeah, I've I've never been somebody that had kind of idols or celebrity fascinations. But what I have really come to appreciate about um, even so, with my grandfather, I was fortunate enough to have some conversations that I videoed uh, before he passed. And in the process of preparing for his memorial, we went ahead and said, okay, we're going to do things different. He, he was the kind of guy that would just hate to have a bunch of people solemnly crying around a casket. So, so my mom goes, no, we're going to have a big dinner party. It's going to be, it's going to be a memorial of all memorials, all the friends, the best, his favorite band that he would go to dinner dances with. And, um, and as coming from the graphic design stuff that I do, I said, okay, well, then I'm going to take these interviews and I'm going to go research all these stories he told me and see if I can get pictures, see if I can corroborate all these details. How can I make these kind of plastered around the room in ways that would open up different facets of, of him for the people that were there? That process of just composing those was so amazing and rewarding for me. 
um, like finding out how wonderful his memory was at 90 was insane. <laughs> and then being able to get the details on this, what's it called? Um, stretchberry bush that he would tell me stories while we were walking down the Katy Trail of being a youngster at the Oddfellows home where he grew up um, in Corsicana and how they would pull these these berries off of this bush and it would act like gum but it wasn't sticky and how they would separate it and add rosin and they would just chew on it for days and just put it in their pocket and and I thought surely this is kind of an exaggerated old man story right no it turns out that you can actually do this and there's this bush called the stretchberry bush and it's kind of regional it's not um, a Willy Wonka type thing. No, it's actually it's, a, it's actually thing. a thing. Uh, or even his, he was a merchant marine in World War II and his story about um, seeing the ship behind him uh, being torpedoed and, and the people jumping from the ship and talking to the, talking to the guys that managed to get to his boat. And, and I thought, well, surely I'm going to be able to find something to back the story up or not. <laughs> it's kind of sensationalized. Instead, no, I found like photos of the ships and all of these other accounts that I could piece back into place and just learn so much more about how my grandfather's state of mind came to be. Uh, and I would love to do that with just about, I mean, certainly with my grandmother who I never got on camera really with these stories. And all I can recall now is really sitting on the phone with her, which you know, unfortunately, whenever you're a kid, it's kind of begrudgingly like, yeah, yeah, I'll call grandma. Okay. Um, but I remember her telling me about learning to drive when she was, I don't even remember what age, but way too young to be learning to drive on the, on the farm with her big brother, letting her sit in the pickup truck front and going over a rickety bridge. And yeah, if I could go back and capture those stories and have the ability to see those flushed out would be amazing. Well, I did not expect that answer. That's very good. <laughs> um, no, it just makes me think of a number of things about, uh, we talked before about identity. Maybe it's related to that where you're trying to come to terms with who you are and inevitably you end up going back at some stage in life and trying to work out where you came from and who you are and, and as a function of, of your family and, and w what your roots are and things like that. That's definitely, I think, a big part of it, a big part of it also because you just see so much uh, commercialized value in like which parts of a family are identified with and yet it's such a shell of an image. So like my, my joke is always, I have all this pride for the fact that right, I have two Texas Rangers in my family. What did they do before they became Texas Rangers? <laughs> Um, and so I found books about them while they were rangers and, and it's continued to be this curiosity for me of, it's fascinating to read these books. It's like, you are reading these fantastical cowboy tales, but then you realize like, this is actually your relative. They were real. Cause it's one of, it's a diary actually, um, put into a book. And, and so I would. I would definitely love to know the non-commercialized side of that. Like, what are the skeletons? <laughs> uh, 
because that would be really educational to just understand how people that you got to this place, right? But there's surely a lot of tribulations that you can't learn from because they weren't recorded because all we really record are like these happy moments. We do it on Instagram now. You have this like picture perfect life. And now how much pressure does that put on you to have this picture perfect life? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) If you want to subscribe to that, for sure. So now we're talking about pictures. Um, Have you ever thought about who would play you in the movie of your life? (laughs) I have not. (laughs) I haven't. Um, It will probably be just like a digital replica of reality (laughs) at that point. (laughs) We won't even need, we won't need people anymore. It'll all be AI. (laughs) 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 Or maybe they can clone me just for the movie because at that point, you know, eugenics and all that, uh, they'll be like, yeah, thanks. We just needed you for the movie. Bye. They'll create a, a number of, you'll spawn a number of clones at different ages to, to do that. Oh God, and then it's terrifying. what do you do with them afterwards then? I, well, the like I said, like, um, that's it. They go, ah, oh, that's kind sad. Of a, yeah. I, I feel know. sad for the future <laughs> clones of you yes. that are going to be, ah, oh, man. On the other hand, if they could just provide me with some clones now, I could be much more productive. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Okay, so let's get back to life lessons. Um, we've talked about a lot uh, of stuff so far. I mean, what advice and you, uh, what advice do you have for people that are listening that really what is getting the most out of life really mean? What's important in life? What What's the right attitude to or an adi- a productive attitude to engaging with life? I mean, that's an amazing question. Uh, I think that at the end of the day, you want to fall asleep having something that you just go, wow, I did that. Or wow, I'm that much closer to getting getting that done. Or, or did you see that? Did you see her face whenever she was so happy that I could help? Um, and any day that I fall asleep kind of feeling that way, even just being grateful, you know, that my boys made it through another day. <laughs> and saying, wow, you know, like, this is this is amazing to be able to to see them grow um but pouring the energy always into those ways of being open to adventure in in your own way in and in the way that makes you feel really um thrilled with what the next day is going to be I don't know if that sounds too lofty of a goal because when I'm saying it, it sounds like this big kind of daunting task, but I feel like it comes through just, I mean, when I make a to-do list, it's, it's broken down so far that it's like, move the laundry to the laundry room. <laughs> to-do I mean, list, folks, that's the answer. So that's how I, that's how I motivate myself on days when I feel like there's just no mental priority list of how to be productive. Um, cause sometimes I wake up and I'm like, I'm getting this done today. And that just takes on and I, and I have the energy to run other days. Like I wake up and I'm like, coffee, <laughs> what can I do to procrastinate so that I don't have to face the things that I need to get done. And, um, and it's not cause I don't like the things that I need to get done. It's just, it really helps to feel like you're able to somehow mentally satisfy your um, that pat on the back for yourself. So, so the way I get through it is is I make a checklist. If I have things on there that are still like 
you know, a day or two goes by and there's still the kind of big tasks that I haven't even made any progress on. I start subdividing that task. Like I said, like laundry to laundry room. Check. All right. I'm halfway there. <laughs> um, <laughs> or yeah, just super simple things like make the phone call that leads to getting the number for this other phone call. <laughs> That's actually what I have to do. Uh, so at the minimum, I turn around at the end of the day and look at that paper or I rewrite that paper and realize like everything has changed from yesterday and that alone is amazing. Um, or there's nothing left on the paper and that is insane. And now what am I going to do? Well, let's start thinking about all the things that you didn't even add to the list. <laughs> um, it helps me move consistently forward. Um, but it also, I think, really helps my self-confidence in the fact that, like, you can break this down and you can do anything that you can dream about. Because if you can, if you can start putting into pieces the logistics, um, even these mi micro steps, then eventually, you know, you'll live to see the day when it becomes reality. Any other final words you want to leave with the guests? I'm calling them guests, the listeners. Yeah. The people, the, I feel like they're in, in the room with us. I don't know exactly like what idea. they look like, but I... I mean, I've got everyone in masks and goggles anyway, so... <laughs> um, it has not been that long since I returned from Nevada, so... Uh, I mean, go get it. Go, go do what you love doing today for five minutes, even if it's just dreaming about it, right? As an athlete, that's sometimes what you did. You prepared by just mentally imagining yourself doing or being whatever you're um, dreaming about. So just take five minutes and be there and be happy. So I want to just, I think that's excellent advice. And I just want to make, is there a distinction in there between different types of dreaming? Because I think what you were talking about is visualization. Is, is it not all? Jennifer, you seem to do things, the things that you dream about seem to actually turn <laughs> right. out. So I, I'm kind of wanted to ask you, how do you make that happen? Um, <laughs> is it detailed to-do lists? Is that, have we covered that already? Or is that, what's the step in between those yeah, two things? Yeah, I mean, if, if something's a reoccurring idea, one, I write it down somewhere. I make it physical somewhere. Um, and, and as much as possible, whether that's on a to-do list. You know, some, some things are just, lofty ideas, I put it somewhere and I think, eh, if I ever return to that, that would be really interesting. But I don't know if I am super motivated to return, it's just an idea. And then somehow that that plants a seed. Um, and, and from there, those little seeds just start to grow whenever you give yourself time to think. You know, whether that's whenever you go for a walk or veg without like distractions and somehow I mean for me that normally is like I drive up to my garage and then I just sit there <laughs> I don't know if anyone else does this I have a real difficulty like pulling up turning off my car and getting out right away <laughs> like somehow that is one of those mental like what is the world for a few seconds I don't know maybe I lose track of time um, and then you kind of zone back into what the priorities for that day is and it rattles around in there. There used to be this statement that they made on the, so 
in Yale's computer science courses, in kind of their hell courses, the professors are really adamant that you have to abide by a Gilligan's Island rule, which is that if you talk to anybody about an assignment, you then have to watch three episodes of Gilligan's Island before you go back to working on it. And the idea is that you will completely forget any bit of knowledge you had learned from talking to someone else about the assignment after kind of numbing your brain with Gilligan's Island. I didn't think Gilligan's Island was that bad whenever I watched it. I don't know when I was a kid. But, um, but I think there is something to letting your mind drift into other places and then returning to a task because um, somehow you're working on all those problems. But you have to make them real enough questions in your head before you start navigating it. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Jennifer Wester, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. To stay up to date on all the things going on with Total Life Complete, you can sign up to the mailing list by visiting the website at www.totallifecomplete.com and you'll also get special offers and discount codes for events. Let me know what you want out of the podcast by emailing me at podcast at totallifecomplete.com. All the best. <laughs>